trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I trust that you are a fellow truth seeker. Not so much interested in hearing affirmations as to what you already believe, but actually uh, catching snippets of truth that somehow just aren't being made available elsewhere. Now, it's not that I've cornered the market. It's just that I'm willing to look other places than legacy or mainstream media. And that includes even, you know, some corners of the alternative media markets where, you know, there's there's incomplete or heavily shaded information. Look, I'm not going to guarantee that every single thing that I tell you is absolute gospel truth. And boy, you can hang your hat on it. But I will say that I'm pretty careful in terms of the uh, information sources that I find reliable, you know, credible, trustworthy. And so I try not to waste your time like I'm doing right now, explaining how it all works. Anyway, welcome to the show. Glad you could join me. Thanks to lifesavingfood.com for being a sponsor, tmcpnation.com, Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. Wonderful subscription coffee service. If, if you need a cup of joe to get you going in the morning, these are the folks you should be subscribing to. Also, quiltandsew.com. So I've got a lot of different uh, things to cover today. I thought we'd talk about uh, permissionless innovation. I thought we could talk about the carbon hysteria. And we gotta got to uh, either pay those carbon credits or we've got to uh, you know slow those carbon emissions. We'll talk a little bit about that. The left is coming for Christianity and if you didn't, uh, if you didn't see the article or the uh, advertisement rather during the Super Bowl, he gets us. That's pretty good evidence of of how Christianity is in danger of being co opted, at least to to the degree that people allow it to be co opted. Also, I'm going to be sharing with you a little bit later on in the show some excerpts from Thomas Luongo's breakdown of the Vladimir Putin Tucker Carlson interview. Now I know that's it's been analyzed, you know to death by just about every single angle and every type of media possible. But Luongo has, I think, a really solid take on what everybody's missing about this interview. In other words, yeah, people try to spin it to their advantage, you know, pro-Russia, anti-Russia, and so forth. I think Tom Luongo has a take that's, uh, that's definitely worth considering. But let's start with something a little bit closer to home. Let's start with, let's start with why is it that our money buys less than it did before, and not always in obvious ways. What's that? You you hadn't noticed? Well, let my good friend Joe Biden step up here and, and explain what the problem is. This is from a, a TV commercial that ran during the Super Bowl on Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. If you're anything like me, you like to be surrounded by a snack or two while watching the big game. You know, when buying snacks for the game, you might have noticed one thing. Sports drinks bottles are smaller. A bag of chips has fewer chips. They're still charging it just as much. And as an ice cream lover, what makes me the most angry is that ice cream cartons have actually shrunk in size, but not in price. I've had enough of what they call shrinkflation. It's a ripoff. Some companies are trying to pull a fast one by shrinking the products little by little and hoping you won't notice. Give me a break. The American public is tired of being played for suckers. I'm calling on companies to put a stop to this. 
Let's make sure businesses do the right thing now. Yes, and charge only enough money to uh, <laughs> to go out of business and not to uh, turn any kind of a profit. Come on, businesses, what is your problem? How could we? How could this possibly have happened anyway? How could it be that the dollar is buying less? How could it be that rather than raising your prices, you're shrinking your your quantities? Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, and and I maybe it's wrong for me to laugh. Maybe it's wrong for me to poke fun at this, but. I have a very basic understanding of economics, and even I get that uh, when it comes to monetary policy, it's not a matter of, oh, these companies, they're just being greedy and trying to charge more. Any more than a person who is is charging, you know, $50 for a case of water when there's artificial scarcity, say, following a hurricane or prior to a hurricane or something like that, they're not necessarily being greedy. Prices tell us about what the market is willing to put up with. They tell us, you know, how much something is worth. And when things are very, very scarce, say, let's take, for instance, that $50 case of water. What does that say? Well, they're gouging people. They're people in need. Not necessarily. Now, I understand this is kind of counterintuitive. So if, if, if you get a little bit frustrated with me, I understand that. But I want to just present another possibility here. Let's just say there's some kind of natural disaster. People are stocking up and they come to that one last case of water. What, $50 for a case of water? To someone who really needs that water, that $50 case means that that water will be there when they need it. In other words, people who are like, oh, 50 bucks for a case of water, I'm not going to pay that much. Good. You don't need it as bad as the person who is willing to pay 50 bucks for it. But see, there's another aspect here, and that is that $50 case of water sends signals through the market that, hey, there's a scarcity of this particular commodity, meaning there's a need that can be met. You see where I'm going with this? Meaning that a profitable or a, a an entrepreneurial individual could come in and meet that need. And yes, they could probably turn a profit, and they should if they are actually meeting a need. Let people, you know, pay them for the value that's being provided. And they'll know this is where we need to send more cases of water. Let's go buy up water and we'll go there and sell it. And the more availability of that water, the quicker the prices are going to come down. I hope that makes sense. Because it has nothing to do with the, with companies being greedy and it certainly has nothing to do with the president, you know, trying to tell companies, I want you guys to knock it off. It sure makes me mad as an ice cream lover. By the way, Elgato Malo says, you know, when I saw this video, I presumed it had to be some kind of satire, but it's not. And apparently they link right to the president's account. A sitting U.S. president actually sat there and blamed higher prices on the manufacturers. Now, Elgato Malo says it's like some form of Poe's law where any leader of sufficient decrepitude cannot be discerned from a deep fake parody of himself. Elgato Malo says it's hard to tell what he's even going for here. Honestly, what is he asking companies to do? Keep prices, keep sizes the same and raise prices or to keep size and price flat into high cost inflation driven by federal policy that would more or less have their profits in a year and render them profitless in two. That's a serious mystery. And Elgato Malo says what's not a mystery is that hot on the heels of his recent exculpation on charge, charges of mishandling classified documents, 
because investigators have deemed him too senile to be convicted and or to know what he was doing. And yet his ruinous speech diatribe defending himself came off more like an old man yelling at clouds than elder statesman. Senior Biden is taking big hits left and right. The knives are out fully for him and in plain view. Now, Gato Malo says no one is, is hiding anymore. Even CNN is savaging the president. And that's when you know you've truly run out of air cover from the left. Now, Elgato Malo says, what fascinates me is that it looks like his own team has turned on him. Consider he's got literal phalanxes of minders and handlers, marketing people, PR people, and they are letting him get up and speak and sound like this at a time when he's being accused of not being all there. Yeah, this is past sabotage. It might well be over the line into elder abuse. And it's outright hard to watch. This is the team that knew enough to run a campaign from a basement and a presidency from Delaware. But suddenly it's President Putin head on parade. Elgato Malo says it's over, guys. Joe will not be the Democratic candidate. And the gang is going wild to get him out and someone else in. Just as some internet cat who shall remain nameless to stop him from getting a swollen ego predicted. Well, well played, Elgato Malo. Uh, once Trump was locked in as a candidate, it was time to give Joe the hook by allowing his incapacity to be shown widely. So the next move is for the Getty Pelosi wing to put forward Greasy Gavin as the reluctant savior who rides in to unify the party and set the stage for the torch passing of Team Donkey generations. Elgato Malo says you can see all the signs if you look carefully. Even Bill Maher is talking up Gavin Newsom. So from Nancy staying in office despite long-standing desires to retire because she's got to be there to raise money and whip the base, the election will be Dawn and Gav, says Elgato Mallow, and Gav has a real shot at winning even without dirty tricks, and there will be dirty tricks. Keep in mind, he's younger, he's a better speaker, he had better support in terms of political machine, he'll attack Trump on abortion, Trump will fight back on the border, and if Gavin is really smart or Machiavellian, He'll jump on the track. He'll jump the tracks rather and join Texas on border control. Now Elgato Malo says, "I doubt he has the cojones, but if he did, he'd win the election at a walk." So brace for it, says Elgato Malo. This is going to be a brutal nine months. Now I realize the vast majority of what I've just told you is stuff you and I really don't have a lot of control over. So this is more for your awareness and my awareness. There's other things you and I can and should be doing to uh, better ourselves and better our positions, regardless of what happens. But I thought you would appreciate uh, a little bit different take, courtesy of Elgato Malo. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's get right back into things here. I did not watch the Super Bowl, just uh, for for the record. I think I had a couple family members checking it from time to time on social media. And every so often I'd say, okay, any any word on the game? But that was, you know, more anything go crazy or wrong? Nothing nothing to report. Although it was an interesting come behind from, uh, from what I hear. San Francisco fans were a little bit disappointed. Nonetheless, the uh, ads that ran during the Super Bowl always seemed to get a lot of attention. Big captive audience. And the one titled He Gets Us definitely got people talking. Andrea Widberg warns, though, this ad also makes it very clear 
that the left is coming for Christianity. Here's how she puts it. She says, During the Super Bowl, a very well-funded group ran an ad showing conservatives abasing themselves before leftist victim classes. With the tagline, He gets us. With the he referring to Jesus. Now, the message was clear. Whatever traditionalists say about Christ's teachings is wrong. Leftists are morally and doctrinally correct, and it's time for Christianity to get with the program. Now, that's not the only assault 2024 has on traditional Christian beliefs. Rob Reiner has a movie coming out challenging so-called Christian nationalism and substituting leftism in its place. So, Andrea Woodberg says, look, here's four things I got to get out of the way before I get to the meat of this post. First, before he was politicized, Rob Reiner directed some wonderful movies, notably The Princess Bride, This Is Spinal Tap. Others are fond of When Harry Met Sally and Misery. But by 1995, though, with the American president, Reiner stopped being concerned with his artistic vision, which was lovely, and started becoming politicized. And Andrea says it went downhill from there. Second, the interview which runs in Newsweek is kind of incoherent because it's not really an interview. It's an insider conversation between two leftists who are less interested in informing people and more interested in proselytizing their utter dislike for Christians who believe in the Gospels as written and hating on Trump. Andrea says, as best as I can tell, H. Allen Scott, the interviewer, is a gay man and drag queen who was raised as a Mormon and converted to uber-reform Judaism. Third, regarding that Judaism, Reiner acknowledges that although born Jewish, he was raised secularly and as noted, you can bet that Scott's conversion wasn't through a conservative or orthodox congregation. What's important to understand is that people who identify as both Jewish and leftists are exactly committed to the old, as committed to the Old Testament as people who identify as Christian and leftist are committed to the Gospels. Okay, that makes sense. That is, they drape themselves in biblical garments and then relentlessly fold, spindle, and mutilate traditional doctrines to accommodate their leftist beliefs. Yeah, there are a lot of self-identified Jews on the left, but you might more accurately call them Jews in name only. Because while they like throwing around Yiddish words and fasting on Yom Kippur, they have no interest in core religious values. It's performative. Many are actually well-meaning, but can easily be controlled by their fear of another holocaust. Fourth, Andrea Woodberg says, because both men are leftists first and religious, well, not at all. No matter what they call themselves, their goal, as with all leftists, is to change what it means to be religious. The moral precepts of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, must be rewritten to accommodate their true theology, which is wokeism. So, now to the interview. She says, as I noted, it's a dog. Distilled to its essence, it really boils down to saying that Trump is a bad man. The Christians who support him are bad people, and those same Christians are not only probable white supremacists, but they don't understand Jesus' message. Oh, and what was Jesus' message? Inclusion. Or, as Reiner says, quote, So I thought, boy, this movement that they have here seems completely antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was about peace and love and helping thy neighbor and those less fortunate than ourselves. And I thought this was something that we should all aspire to. So, to me, this movement is going totally opposite the teachings of Jesus. End quote. Now, Andrea Woodberg says, naturally the movie, which seemingly castigates traditional Christians as one step away from Hitlerism, complete with race, hate, and homophobia, isn't meant to offend. According to Reiner, it's only meant to spawn a discussion. 
See, that's how leftists think. You tell people they're irredeemably evil, and then you say, let's discuss it. Pretty funny. Honestly, you have to read the interview for yourself to appreciate how completely loopy it is. It throws Reagan, Brown versus Board of Education, abortion, Christian nationalism, patriotism, a bad thing because it's tied to conservative Christian ideas, integration, Trump cultism, and everything else into an incoherent pot. Get rid of traditional Christianity and you will save democracy. Well, Andrea says, the best I can offer is the movie's trailer, which makes it very clear that the only good Christian or the only good version of Christianity is one that strips away entirely the Bible's moral teachings and ends up with love, a funny concept when you think how much Democrats hate Trump supporters and inclusion. So there's an old expression, if the mountain won't come to Muhammad, then Muhammad must go to the mountain. You'll find, for example, a variant in Jane Eyre, chapter 12. Leftists have concluded that Christians aren't going to change. Therefore, they're going to change Christianity. The important thing to focus on is is that this isn't about faith. This is about control. Interesting take. And by the way, I I have seen, you know, a very decided uh, increase in in concerns and pearl-clutching and hyperventilation over uh, so-called Christian nationalism. Here in Idaho, that's kind of the battle cry of the the real hardcore left is, you know, oh, there's Christian nationalists here. And yet, what's, what's the alternative? I mean, is there an opposite to being a Christian nationalist? What would you be, you know, a a satanic globalist? Because I believe those exist. Klaus Schwab, I'm looking your direction specifically. Look, I think there needs to be a very strict separation of church and state. And if what Andrea Widberg is suggesting about how the left is coming for Christianity, you will see that line between church and state become even more blurred than it sometimes feels now. And all those leftists who are like, we don't want a theocracy. They do. They do want a theocracy, but they want a theocracy controlled by them. See, I don't, I don't agree with a right-wing theocracy either. No, I want to see people uh, free to worship or not, according to their conscience. To me, that's the, that's the great power of religion. Is if, you, if you have to teach morals to large groups of people, Religion really is the best way to do that. Now, does that mean every religion gets it absolutely right? No, not necessarily. But if you were to distill down the, the core beliefs of most of the world's major religions, and I'm even, even the ones I can't pronounce, it really comes down to some variation of love God, love your neighbor. The two great commandments, as, as Jesus would say. So I'm happy, to, I'm happy to back religion from that standpoint. However, when you start mixing religion with state or when, uh, you know, when the state or for that matter, wokeism becomes your religion and now we need the force of the state to impose it on other people, okay, that's a big problem. And frankly, I believe that uh, much of what we hear about in terms of Marxism, Maoism, political correctness, cultural Marxism, etc., it does take on religious undertones. In fact, it, it takes on religious, uh, um, it takes on kind of a religious feel because there are things you are just not allowed to question. It's very dogmatic, in other words, and it proselytizes, and it's a jealous type of proselytizing. 
You're either with us or you're going to hell. Kind of, you know, whatever, whatever the, uh, the secular version of hell is. Now, I've said it before and I still maintain. The biggest reason for this isn't because there are people out there actively trying to seek the truth and they just got a little bit misguided in trying to force the truth on other people. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it comes down to there can be no competing moral authority under Marxist thinking. And church, or religion for that matter, represents a competing moral authority, one which might say, hey, you know what, starving all those people to death in Ukraine, not a good idea. To which the uh, authority that doesn't want to be challenged says, shut up. (laughs) No, let me shut you up because I don't want people doubting whatever it is that I'm trying to do. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, let's dive into another thought-provoking segment here. I know it's tempting to simply roll our eyes at the climate crisis folks who keep saying, well, you know, these carbon emissions, we've got to reduce them. We gotta, we've got to reduce these carbon emissions to zero because we're trying to save the planet. And I guess uh, when it comes to that, I know there are some true believers, and actually I, I had the chance to work with some who I think really take climate crisis seriously. And they're not hardcore leftists. These are actually uh, young Gen Z people who, you know, it's been it's been drilled into their heads from kindergarten on that we have a terrible crisis and, you know, the climate is, is warming or cooling, as the case may be, and something's got to be done. But the bottom line is how... That, uh, that uh, climate, uh, the carbon uh, reduction comes about. That's a big deal. Because the truth of the matter is the, the world runs on fossil fuels and it has for a long time. And it could for much longer. But it seems like someone is trying to, uh, how can I put this? Destroy the system. Oh, yes, it's in favor of clean energy, but it's still destroying the existing system. Let's talk about that. Courtesy of Doug Casey in an interview with International Man, he talks about why the carbon hysteria is a huge threat to your personal freedom and financial well-being. International Man says Western countries are leading the charge in restructuring their economies around the issue of climate change. They've committed to a comprehensive agenda to decarbonize their economies by 2050. And so they ask Doug, what's your take on this? Doug Casey says to sum it up in one word, it's insane. In two words, it's criminally insane. He says, before the Industrial Revolution, the overwhelmingly major fuel source was wood. After that, we went to coal, which was a big improvement in density of energy and economics. Then we went to to oil, which was another huge improvement in energy density and economics. Now, these things happened not because of any government mandates, but simply because they made both economic and technological sense. If the market had been left alone, the world would undoubtedly be running on nuclear. Nuclear is unquestionably the safest, cheapest, cleanest type of mass power generation. Now, he says this isn't the time to go into the numerous reasons that's true, but if nuclear had been left unregulated, we'd already be using small, self-contained, fifth-generation thorium reactors generating power almost too cheap to meter. The world would already be running on truly clean, green electricity. 
But instead, Doug says, time, capital, and brain power have been massively diverted to the so-called ecological power sources, mainly wind and solar, strictly for ideological reasons. And he says the powers that be want to transition the whole world to phony green energy, like it or not. Now, he says, I'm all for green energy in principle. There's no question that solar and wind are worthwhile and effective for select applications, generally small, isolated, special locations where conventional fuel is inconvenient or too costly. Now, the efficiency of solar has been tremendously improved over the last few decades, as has wind efficiency. But he says neither makes any sense for mass baseload power in industrial economies. So with further technological advances, they may become more economic someday. Perhaps people will eventually put large collectors in high Earth orbit and microwave the power down to the surface. I mean, there are all kinds of sci-fi possibilities. But Doug Casey says right now, green is just a nice word for stupid, ideological, or government-sponsored. Doing things the green way takes power away from the markets, which is where people vote with their dollars, and instead it places power in the hands of ideologues and bureaucrats. So in brief, wind and solar are being promoted at the very time nuclear and fossil fuels are being damned. It's the opposite of what should be happening and a very bad trend from every point of view. He says, put me down as liking the birds and the bunnies as much as anyone else, but I'm anti-green. Anyway, Eco-freaks don't really care about the birds and the bunnies so much. That's just a veneer. Doug Casey says they actually hate people and really want them to disappear. Just as an aside, he's right. There is a clear anti-human sentiment that lies just below the surface of the really dedicated environmentalism. Yes, I think it's anti-human in the same sense that communism is anti-human. He says, if they want people to disappear, that's the reason why. Or at the very least, they want to control them. And the great global warming, anti-fossil fuel hysteria, well, Doug Casey says that's a great way to do it. So International Man then says, well, okay, as part of this agenda, the U.S., the EU, and OECD countries plan to phase out oil, gas, and other fuels, replacing them with zero or low-carbon sources of energy. What kind of disruptions could we see as the transition is made to energy sources that may not be as reliable. Doug Casey's answer is lots of disruptions, many of them both huge and currently unanticipated. Now, the U.S. has 330 million people. Why should decisions for hundreds of millions be made by bureaucrats and political hacks in Washington, D.C.? Why should they be the ones who decide what power should or should not be used? Doug says that's a question that nobody asks. People simply assume that's the way. That's the way it should be, and they should largely do as they're told. And they never stop and consider that governments have set back progress immeasurably over history. The main products of government are wars, pogroms, confiscations, taxes, regulations, and the like. By the way, we'll talk a little more about permissionless innovation coming up here in a few moments. Doug Casey says oil companies like Shell and British Petroleum are talking about getting out of the oil business. Oil companies and their employees and investors are looked down upon as the destroyers of the world. Nobody in polite society wants to admit that they're in the oil business. So before you drill an oil well anywhere in the world, it's necessary to ask permission from one or more government entities. In the Western world, where the public has been captured by notions of PC and ESG, governments are loath to issue drilling permits, and drillers don't want to drill because costs are artificially high, 
and any profits will be subject to discouraging taxes. So the bottom line is, Doug says, expect oil production to drop in the West. Now, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, more oil was discovered than was being used. Reserves went up, but that's no longer the case. It's not because the oil isn't there. It's because it's too politically incorrect to look for it and exploit it. Furthermore, he says, scientists, engineers, and investors are staying away from anything to do with fossil fuels. So you can plan on both fuel shortages and much higher costs. Markets are being subverted and are becoming ever more politicized. In addition, he points out how the so-called green technologies aren't really green. They just seem green on the surface. Giant windmills and solar farms rely on massive amounts of fossil fuels and metals to be manufactured and installed. Now, these have limited lifespans and they must be disposed of. Not only can't they provide mass quantities of power consistently, but they all show losses even after tax benefits disguise them. That destroys capital. They're not signs of progress, but monuments to waste and destruction. We're going to have huge disruptions in the energy markets in the years to come since the whole world runs on energy. He says that's really serious. Next, he's asked, well, is the new climate change crisis an invitation for more government intervention in the world? Doug's answer is yes. It's like inviting a vampire into your house. For many decades, kids have been indoctrinated with ideas about counterproductive conservatism and greenism. Comic books, school books, teachers' lectures, television, you name it. Present the Earth as being under attack from the forces of darkness. Mankind, especially the scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs, are shown exploiting and raping Mother Nature and her natural resources. Yeah, they're presented as evil. Bronowski's ascent of man has been subverted into a battle of good versus evil, where all the values have been turned upside down. And the problem has permeated society, and it's even worse in the education system. By the way, you'll see a very good example of this. In a uh, Boise school board member, a young man who actually was elected to the Boise school board when he was 18 years old, a senior in high school, Shiva Rajbandari. Now, he currently is attending school, I believe, in North Carolina, but uh, this young man is a true believer in climate crisis to the point that he's been going around. He, he famously was arrested here a couple of weeks ago disrupting a, uh, a Vivek Ramaswamy event. I think he disrupted a uh, Ron DeSantis event and just got himself arrested a couple of days ago outside uh, Biden's campaign headquarters. Why is that a concern? Because, well, he's, he's a true believer. And the sad thing about it is he's, he's a true believer of groups and organizations and movements that are using him, and I'm sorry to use this phrase, as a useful idiot to further their cause with, with no clue that when they're done with him, when his usefulness has been used up, and when, when actual hardcore leftists find themselves with their hands on the levers of power, Shiva's going to be one of the first people up against the wall Wondering what the heck happened. He went from favor to now they want to get rid of him. By the way, I'm not wishing any harm on this young man. You understand? I'm just saying historically, that's what hardcore Marxists do. And the people that they used to get him into power, well, they're just they're easily disposed of. I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. Be careful what you hit your star to, right? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I, I There's much more in that Doug Casey article that I would encourage you to please check out for yourself. I think uh, you'll find it worthwhile. It's It's very comprehensive. And it's a great interview, but uh, I think Doug has a really good take on the carbon hysteria and and where it seems to be going and how they're creating something much more serious than just another economic disaster. In fact, I want to skip ahead here. I'll just give you a quick little summary. He's asked, will carbon credits become new a new government-created commodity that corporations and individuals will be forced to purchase? Doug says, without question, it's a clever way to turn a tax into something that looks like an asset, an investment. Now, he says, look, this is all about politics and money, but disguised as a religious movement, which is quite clever. There's no question that greenism is being promoted as a new religion. Now, he says Christianity is a dead duck in Europe. It's dying in North America, but people need some type of religion, a replacement for Christianity to hold on to. And Doug says people will be encouraged to treat their taxes as tithes, to wash away their sins against Mother Nature, much the way they tithed the church to ex- tithed to the church to expunge their sins in the Middle Ages. It's an exact analogy. They'll buy carbon credits as an analog for building cathedrals and monasteries. Doug Casey says, as an economist as well as someone who reads a lot of science, I think it's ridiculous and destructive. The whole anti-carbon, carbon sequestration, and greenism thing is a political hysteria promoted by people who like to control other people. And he says, I'm completely opposed to carbon credits or carbon taxes from that point of view. But he says, when I put on my speculator's hat, well, I'm all for it. There are companies being formed to cleverly capitalize on all this destructive nonsense. And he says, it's still very early days, and the public will pile into the space with a combination of religious fervor and findicical greed... He says, I expect a massive bubble in this space, and I'm all for bubbles if I can buy in early. Doug says, a speculator is a cynic, not a philanthropist. And though I hasten to add that most philanthropists are hypocrites. He says, it's a pity the vast majority of people have been totally brainwashed by greenism, and carbon stocks are a great way to turn the lemon into lemonade. Great, great article. Now, I want to shift gears for a moment and point you toward another article that I'm sharing. This one's actually from a few years back, October of 2017. And it's uh, written by Michael Munger. When it comes to innovating, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And here he goes into some detail on how requiring permission set back communications in the United States for decades. Michael Munger says, sometimes people ask me, what's the most important concept in political economy? And the answer is easy, but subtle. Permissionless innovation, a strong presumption in, a fa- in favor of allowing experimentation with new technologies and with new business platforms that use those technologies. By the way, I had a chance to interview um, Adam Thierer. I guess it would have been back in 2017. It seems like that's, wow. So that would have been about the time that this article was written. Adam Thierer is the author of Permissionless Innovation. And that's a, it's a great, great resource. But there are barriers to permissionless innovation. In other words, you're not just free to go out there and create. More often than not, people are in the habit of, well, if I want to do something, I better go make sure that uh, that it's okay. And they go hat in hand to the government. In this case, Michael Munger says permissionless innovation may seem like common sense, but it isn't. For decades, the Bell Telephone Network refused to connect any phones except those it licensed. The claim was that the phones might not be safe. 
but the effect was to arrest progress at the stage of rotary phones attached by wires to walls. You do remember those, right? The problem went far beyond phone sets, though. Economist Tom Hazlitt's recent piece in Reason describes how requiring permission actually set back communications in the United States for decades. So there are two kinds of obstacles to permissionless innovation. One is requiring permission from regulators, and then there's requiring permission from competitors. Yeah. See, the first type of obstacle, needing permission from regulators, seems more innocuous, but it isn't. The delays in processing applications for permission to experiment sharply curtail the types and frequency of experiments that are possible. Worse, attempts by regulators to pick winners and losers can pose obstacles of their own. Suppose the authorities don't require licenses for technological experiments, but they do offer subsidies for the kinds of work that seem promising. You know, like solar and wind. Now, that second obstacle seems absurd since, by definition, most invention innovations rather harm competitors. That's what makes them innovations. But there are many such requirements, as John Stossel pointed out, also for reason. Of course, the nature of innovation means that it's often the least promising technologies, at least in the view of experts, that turn out to be the most important. Interesting article. And, and uh, com- keeping in mind that this is almost seven years old now. Talks about Twitter exemplifying the golden age of permissionless innovation and so forth. The bottom line here, though, is permissionless innovation allows us to truly create new things for each other to enjoy. Things the experts may not understand or approve of, but that nonetheless hold the potential to transform the world. Great stuff. I think this one has uh, weathered the test of time quite admirably. Again, an article from Michael Munger. I've got it included in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, one last article. This is the article of the day. I know the Tucker Carlson interview of Russian President Vladimir Putin has sent shockwaves through the media and the ruling classes. Thomas Luongo. Tom Luongo has written about this and has, I think, a terrific take on what everyone is missing about the Putin-Carlson talk. And I like that he starts with the uh, he starts with you know the the safe place you know uh, where where most people are going to come down. On, well, why exactly did he do this? And and Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, actually features as kind of the bellwether for normies. Scott Adams says, "How many of you thought Putin was all there in the Tucker interview? If he seemed lucid to you, it's because Biden is your comparison." I thought Biden seemed unhinged, or I thought Putin rather seemed unhinged. The history lesson was not a good sign. Now, Tom Luongo says, that was the kindest of the bad takes I found on this, but he says, I'm having one of Scott's one movie, two screens moments here. Because he says, Putin looked anything other than unhinged. In fact, he looked as calm as I've ever seen him. Taking a relaxed posture to put Carlson, who was clearly unsure of where he stood at the beginning of the interview, at ease. But this is the message that Adams wanted to see, framing Putin in relation to Biden because he needed something unique to say to justify his even being in the conversation. Now, by contrast, and he links to an article by Martin Armstrong, he says Martin had a great post curating all of the crazy neocon takes from the media on his blog over the weekend. And what's obvious from those is that they understood Putin's 30-minute opening monologue would put off a lot of casual watchers who would tune him out at that moment. I mean, he went on for about a thousand years of Russian history over a 20 to 30-minute span. So a lot of people would say, ah, I don't really want to know about this. 
So the people who then wanted to focus on steering that conversation, well, his false history of Russia and Ukraine, that was where their analysis went. That way, the false history would dominate everyone's opinions the next day, managing the Overton window of the entire interview, making it all about that. That's the basis of how they would discredit Putin. And then, of course, to discredit uh, Carlson, people like Hillary Clinton were trotted out to lie about Tucker Carlson calling him a useful idiot, a puppy dog, a joke in the Russian media, which, by the way, is an outright lie. And Hillary's harpy laugh made an appearance alongside a sycophant inter- interviewer as they joked about Carlson having been fired from every legitimate news agency. Oh, they are mad. So we were treated to a common sight, says Tom Luongo, two Beltway insiders laughing inside their echo chamber, and only our sick fascination with roadkill makes it even remotely interesting. So the whole exercise is now reframed as puppy dog Tucker throwing softballs to liar Putin to distract us away from the sum and substance of their talk. I know. In other words, in other news, rather, water is wet and women want more sex when they're fertile. Do you know why Tucker went after this interview with Putin in the first place, though? If you watch the interview, you'll find out. And in fact, you watch the interview he did after conducting his interview with Putin. He was outraged at being denied the opportunity to interview Putin for three years by the NSA and the CIA, spying on him, releasing his texts to the media. And the worst thing the gatekeepers ever did, says Tom Luongo, was to fire Tucker Carlson from Fox News. They let him off his leash, making him independent, freed him from the restraints of corporate media. So when you know that Tucker tried for three years to get this interview with Putin, it's probably safe to assume that Putin would come into the room prepared. And some of the things you might uh, learn if you actually watch the entire interview, you would learn things like, well, did you know that Putin asked Bill Clinton for Russia to become part of NATO, thus ending NATO's entire reason for existence? Or that Bush the Lesser unilaterally abrogated the ABM or Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty? Did you know this? Or did you know that the Minsk agreements were the last hope for a settlement of the differences between the Donbass and Kiev? And that Putin was the one pushing to make them work? Now, there are at least a half dozen other things people learned in this interview if they had ears to listen. And Tom Luongo says, I'm looking at you, Scott Adams. To me, this just underlines the importance of if you want to know what's going on, you've got to be willing to go to the source and you've got to be willing to sit through the interview and hear it and see it for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.